All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. You are on time. And so what I wanted to do, uh, a, f- a few just brief announcements and, and a giveaway. Since y'all are here on time, you get books uh, or the chance for books. Okay, first, uh, if, you, if you enjoy Mark 4 this morning and you want to dig uh, deeper into this chapter, um, there's a wonderful book. Uh, it was one of the most important books that I read in college, uh, a book by R.C. Sproul called The Holiness of God. Now, some of you have heard of it. Maybe you've read it. I have two copies. If you've, if you've not read it before, there's a, a chapter uh, called The Trauma of Holiness, chapter 4, um, where Sproul goes through and unpacks some of the things that we're going to be thinking about this morning and so it's an excellent book, very accessible. It'll help you know, know God better. And Jeremy, my friend, is going to give out two copies. I see, I see a hand. I see a hand. Um, second thing is, at the end of our class this morning, uh, I'll pray, and then we'll sing the doxology, and then typically uh, we'll stick around afterwards to talk. But just want to encourage you, you can talk but talk on your way down to the, to the main hall because this morning uh, the handbell choir is going to do a prelude. And uh, I want you to be able to get your coffee if you need to get coffee, go to the restroom, visit or whatever, but then be able to get in there and to hear, uh, hear them lead us in a prelude. Okay. Okay. Um, let me do this. Before I pray, let me just give you a little quick art lesson. Okay. And then we'll pray. All right. Um, does anyone know what this is? Can you see it? It's hard to see. Yeah, yeah. So this, this is a painting by Rembrandt. You ever heard of Rembrandt? Okay, yes, one person. Great. So this is called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's a 20-foot painting, and for 100 years it was in a, a museum in Boston. But then in 1990, it was stolen, and it's never been seen since. And now it's, there we go, look at this. There it is. It was stolen. And uh, we didn't pay the light bill, apparently. No, I'm just kidding, kidding. No, it's much better. So, so, so in this scene, obviously, it's depicting the passage we're going to be reading about in a minute, Mark chapter 4, the, the calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, it was stolen, and it's sad because this is the only seascape Rembrandt ever painted. But when you look at the seascape, as you look at this in detail, you start to notice some interesting things. As you zoom in a little bit, um, you'll start to see uh, just the flurry of activity of the apostles. Uh, You've got some guys who are trying to to pull the rigging here and hold on for dear life. From whatever reason, I don't know, I guess Rembrandt thought there were whales or something in the sea. It looks like a harpoon or something. Um, but you can see all of this activity in the front and activity in the back, and you can see that the Savior there, who's just been woken up by the apostles, and they're looking a little concerned. This guy here is sick. He's, he's going over this side of the boat. There's a guy here, you can barely see him, who's praying. But when if you start to count up all the apostles that are in the boat, you notice something interesting. Instead of being 12 people in the boat and Jesus, there's 13 people in the boat plus Jesus. And you zoom in a little bit more, 
right here. You see that guy right there? That's Rembrandt. Rembrandt painted himself into the scene. And he's holding onto his hat, holding onto the rope, and he's looking out at you and me. Why would he do that? Well, interestingly, if you were to zoom out on the end of the boat where the rudder is, Rembrandt wrote his name on the rudder. That's where he signed it. So why would he do that? Well, one writer in a recent book put this. I'll just read this and then I'll pray. By painting himself into the boat, Rembrandt wants us to, to know that he believes his life will either be lost in the sea of chaos or rescued and preserved by the Son of God. Those are the only two options. And by peering through the storm, out of the frame to us, he asks if we are not in the same boat. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, who is like you, O Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. O Father, you tell us in your word, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. And so we pray as we draw near to you, as we come into your presence, as your servants who delight to fear your name, we pray you'd fill us this morning with that same response that disciples had when they encountered the empty tomb. They were filled with fear and with great joy. So Father, we pray as we unfold this passage together of our Savior on the sea. Help us to serve you today with fear and trembling. We pray that you would remind us that you take pleasure, O Lord. You delight in those who fear you, in those who hope in your steadfast love. So to that end, we pray you'd open our eyes now that we might behold wonderful things in your beautiful word. And what we know not, please teach us. And what we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. All for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved Son, who lives with you and who reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. Amen. Welcome to uh, another uh, time of eyewitnesses of His Majesty. This morning we're going to be thinking about Mark chapter 4, 35 to chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, we're going to be thinking about Jesus as the ruler of the storms. Um, what are we doing in this class? Well, we're, we're seeking to learn how to read Scripture in a way where we can see and savor the glory and grace of Christ. Jesus prayed that for us, that we would see his glory uh, the night he was betrayed in John 17. And the reason this is so important is that the Apostle Paul teaches us that we, as we behold the glory of the Lord in the gospel... By the Spirit of the Lord, we're transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. So in other words, beholding is becoming. And we want to become like Jesus. So we got to look and we got to savor. Um, I read a quote to the, 
uh, pastoral residence this week on preaching. And as I meditated on the quote, I thought, even though this is about preaching, and not everybody in this room is a preacher, it applies to our Bible reading. So I'm going to read the quote, but every time it says preaching, I want you to replace it with Bible reading, okay? Because this is what I'm talking about. So take a sip of coffee, wake up, here it is. Preach Jesus, or preach Jesus Christ, the Lord. Let his name and grace, his spirit and love triumph in the midst of all of your sermons, i.e. Bible reading. Let your, let your great end be to glorify him in the heart, to render him precious in the eyes of his people, to lead them to him. Notice this as a sanctuary to protect them, as propitiation to reconcile them, as a treasure to enrich them, as a physician to heal them, as an advocate to present them and their services to God, as wisdom to counsel them, as righteousness to justify them, as sanctification to renew them, and as redemption to save them. And then look at this. Let Christ... Be the diamond to shine in the bosom of all of your sermons. And that's what this class is aimed to do. I want us to let Christ shine as the diamond in all of our Bible reading. I want us to go to the Bible to meet and commune with the risen Christ in all of his grace and glory. That's what this class is about. How do we do it? Well, we do it in a lot of different ways, but here's some basic rules that we've been talking about. Uh, Rourke rules of interpretation, words have meaning, so we're going to give prayerful and careful to the words. Number two, context is king. We want to see how uh, these passages fit in their literary theological context. We want to make sure that we're interpreting scripture in light of all scripture. The greatest commentary on the Bible is the Bible. The greatest commentary commentator on the Bible is the Holy Spirit who wrote the Bible. And we want to look for the glory and grace of Jesus every time we read the Bible. This morning, in particular, what we're trying to understand more fully is from Mark chapter 4, 35 to 5, 1. We want to see and savor Jesus Christ, notice the sovereign one who rules over all of his creation. We're going to see the sovereign king of the universe the one who is the Lord of creation, the one who's the Lord of the storms displayed in this passage. And the end result of this, I pray, will understand that even in the most desperate situation, Jesus is mighty to save. So if you came in here this morning in a desperate situation, I want, by God's grace, I want to persuade you That Jesus is mighty to save. He can deliver from the most desperate of situations. Okay? Y'all with me? Now, some of y'all are staring at this. It's not a house idol, guys. This is just just a Tennessee nutcracker. I don't know how it got here. It was just here when I got here. I'm not sure. (laughs) Whatever. Amen. All right, we're going to keep going. Y'all with me? All right. Anybody leaving? All right, here we go. Okay, am I just making this up? Am I just saying, yeah, in the most desperate situation, Jesus might be saved? No, I have exegetical warrant for this. How do I know this? It's because this whole chapter from 
from, from chapter uh, 5, verse 30, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 35, all the way to the end of chapter 5 of Mark, you have Mark puts four scenes back to back to back to back. And each one of them has a thread that runs through it called fear. There's, this is the, one of the scariest sections in Mark. Every scene that we're about to go through, we won't go through all of them, they all have to do with fear. There's scary people in, or, or, or scary situations. And the question Mark is asking, what are you going to do with your fear? And so what, what we discover is in all of these situations, Jesus is mightier than the scary situation that people are in. Jesus is going to calm a deadly storm on the sea. And then right after that, we're going to meet a scary demon-possessed man who's set free. Jesus is mightier than that demon-possessed man. Then a diseased, afflicted woman is healed. And right after she's healed, she comes in fear and trembling to the Lord. And then a dead little girl is restored restored to life. And Jesus tells her, Daddy, don't fear, only believe. And so what, what, is, what is Mark doing by putting these things together? He's telling us that Jesus is, is mightier to save. He's mightier than a deadly storm. He's mightier than demons. He's mightier than disease. And he's even mightier than death itself. You see? No matter the situ situation you're in, Jesus is mighty to save. So let's do this. Let's read the passage. It's a wonderful passage. Let's read it together, and then we'll spend some time breaking it down. You should have received a, 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 like a handout that looks like this. We'll just follow through on the handout, okay? Let's read it together. This is Mark 4, 35. This is what Holy Scripture says. And on that day, when evening had come... He said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat. So that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern. That's the back of the boat asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke. And he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm and he said to them why are you so afraid have you no, still no faith and they were filled with great fear and said to one another who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him and they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes.
Let's think first about this storm on the sea. The storm on the sea. We know from chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus has been teaching in parables. He's been teaching up on the, the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, up in the north, remember? And uh, remember, there were so many people pressing in on him. What, what did Jesus do? He got out in a what? A boat. So he could be out in the, in, the, in, the, in the sea, and he's teaching, and all the crowds are there on the shore. And so he's been preaching all day long, and then evening comes. Right? After an exhausting day of preaching and teaching, Jesus uh, says here, he says, let us, you see it right here, let us go across to the other side. He wants to go to the, basically to the southeastern, sorry, southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Let's go across to the other side of the lake. Now, did you notice some interesting details matter? I just found this interesting. We're, we're told here that they, they left the crowd and they took Jesus with him. Notice, in not a boat, the boat. See the definite article? The, the boat. It's the boat that he got in earlier. So the image is there's other boats, but they're coming up to Jesus, and it seems as if they're getting, they're, Jesus is either getting in their boat or, or he's getting in their boat, and they're going out from the water. Jesus never came back to shore. He got in the boat, and they're on their way across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now, remember who's in the boat with Jesus. Just remind yourselves of the apostles, okay? Several of the, of the apostles were what? They were fishermen, right? They had been on the Sea of Galilee their whole lives. They knew this sea like the back of their hands. They knew how to handle a boat, unlike me. I went deep sea fishing once. Within 15 minutes, I was sick. I mean, it didn't, and I didn't catch anything. It was terrible. Um, I read one time, uh, some men take to the sea, and the sea take the rest. I'm definitely the last part, okay? Uh, but they, they made a living off this sea. They knew it very well. And so if you've ever been to, the, to Israel, you know, well, actually, look at this. This thing keeps popping. Y'all hear this? What do I do? Do I do something? Is this good? Is this better? There it is. Better. It was user error. My bad, guys. Um, so you're thinking, what is this? Well, guess what? This is, this is a boat. Can you, can you tell? This was a boat. Look at this. This was a boat that was found in 1986 in Israel on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing boat. You can see it today. It's about 27 feet long, right? It's about eight feet wide, right? And it was made of cedar planks and, and an oak frame, and it could hold about 15 people, right? So this is the kind of boat that Jesus would have been in, right? This is, it would have looked like something like this, okay? So they get into a boat like this, and... They start to go across the sea. The Sea of Galilee, it, 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 if you've ever seen it before, um, it looks like this, right? It's like a big lake. Um, it's, it's, it's 700 feet below sea level. It's shaped like a big basin. It's surrounded by hills, as you can see, right? And so Jesus and the disciples are in this boat, and they're going across the sea to the other side of the lake, all right? And it, that's... That's the point where the storm hits, okay? So now we're a storm on the sea. Verse 37, a great 
windstorm arose. Now notice Mark's going to repeat this word great three times in the passage. You better pay attention to it. A mega windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. So the Sea of Galilee, as you all, you've heard this a thousand times. You've ever heard the teaching on this passage. It's known uh, to, to, to have violent storms that come up out of nowhere. If you think about the way this is structured, you've got the Mediterranean way over here. So warm air blows in off the Mediterranean and then it goes down through the ravines and the valleys and it's kind of like a wind tunnel. And it hits cooler water over the sea, which is lower, and all of a sudden the warm air and the cold air can create intense, violent storms. Um, one commentator put it like this, the clash of wind produces storms that come out of nowhere. The clash of wind creates sudden, violent Squalls, And so Mark says, one of these great windstorms, uh, your Bible may say a fierce gale of wind. I read one translation that said a furious squall. That's a, this is like a, where I'm from, we would say something like a, uh, uh, if, 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 a if a wind, well, I'm not going to tell you what it was. I can't even remember what it is now. Let's keep going. I was going to say, I was going to say it was like a, uh, when it rains a lot. What do y'all call it? Gully washer, right? But it's, no, it's not rain here. This is windstorm. Okay, let's move on. This is not a gully washer. It's a windstorm. It's a mega storm. That's the point. That's the point. This is, this is a, a, an all-hands-on-deck kind of storm. Now, I don't know how this got in my, my notes, but like one time I was in Israel, and I went on the sea, and I don't, how did this get in here? Wait a second. Who put, Allison, did you put this in here? All right, let's move on. All right. Um, okay, so this is, a, this is a all hands on deck kind of a storm, okay? They're in serious trouble. Like imagine, imagine if you're with a bunch of seasoned fishermen who grew up on the Sea of Galilee. If I look over and they're nervous, I'm nervous, right? They've, they've been on the sea before. That, they would often fish at nighttime. That was when the fish would bite. And so they're, they're, they're frightened. Jesus is going to ask them, why are you afraid? I mean, they're afraid. And the, 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 water, the waves are breaking. The boat's filling. It's almost swamped. They're in a desperate situation. And again, all of this is happening when? At night. They're in serious trouble. Winds howling, waves crashing, boat filling, desperate men screaming. Darkness all around. And meanwhile, what's the master doing? He's, yeah, he's sleeping. And so this brings us to a series of rebukes. I want to highlight two rebukes in this passage. Two rebukes, all right? All this is happening, and then there's this noted contrast here. But he, that is Jesus was in the stern, in the back of the boat. And don't you love these kind of eyewitness details? Asleep on a cushion. Mark's gospel, Mark was closely connected to the apostle Peter. And so a lot of these details come straight from Peter. The Lord Jesus is asleep on a cushion. Now, 
There's two things I think we should draw from this. One, sometimes because the passage so emphasizes the deity of Christ, we can overlook the obvious thing is that Jesus is tired. Jesus is truly God. He's also truly man. He's had a long day, and he's in the back on a cushion. He's taking a nap. But I think in context, what's likely going on is that Jesus is sleeping. Jesus is kind of modeling for us trust in a sovereign father who's over all things. I think he's earlier in chapter 4, in verse 27, there was a a reference of a farmer who sows the seed, and then he does what? He goes to sleep. He He trusts everything to his father. And so Jesus, Psalm 3, 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I think Jesus is modeling resting even in the midst of a storm. Now, let me just ask you real quick. We're going to get to this a little bit later. But when, when you read this, this verse right here, as you read the Bible, as Scripture interprets Scripture, this should remind you of something else in the Bible. I'll give you some clues. A great tempest on the sea. Frantic, upset sailors. A Hebrew sleeping through the storm. Ringing any bells? Jonah. We'll get to Jonah in a minute, but just know this. Behold, there is one greater than Jonah who is here. Okay. Now, have you ever been on a flight, uh, maybe somewhere, and you go through intense turbulence? And uh, you look around and there's someone sleeping. Don't you hate those people? (laughs) R.C. Sproul tells this story. One time he was on a flight with his best friend, Jim Boyce. Jim Boyce was the really wonderful pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philly. Great preacher, great preacher. And they were sitting across from each other and they're going through this intense turbulence. It was really bad. And Sproul was saying that he was gripping the chair and frightened. And he looks over and Jim Boyce is like snoring. <laughs> and he's annoyed. So he kind of, he like wakes Jim up and says, you know, like, what gives, right? Wakes him up. And, Sp- and, and Boyce looks at Sproul and says, R.C., why'd you wake me up? He says, what's the matter with you, R.C.? Don't you believe in the sovereignty of God? <laughs> Well, the disciples are a bit annoyed, and look what they do. They, they wake him up, and notice what they say. This, this is the first rebuke, rebuke number one. Here it is. Think about this question. The more you think about this question, the more you ponder this question. It's a haunting question. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Now, there are, there, are certain, there are certain kind of questions that aren't really questions, right? They're more accusations. You know what I'm talking about? You can ask a question in a way where you're not really asking a question. They're, they're saying, teacher, do you, you care for us, right? You care that we're perishing, right? If I said, if I said to someone, are you really going to wear that? <laughs> or... Uh, you're not going to eat that, are you? This is the kind of rebuking question. 
Don't you care that we're perishing? The gospel of the Son of God is the gospel, the good news that he came into the world to rescue the perishing. That's why he came. He came into the world to seek and to save the lost, the perishing. Jesus cares more about the perishing than his disciples would ever fully realize. And so this comes now to the second, the second rebuke right here. It's rebuke number two right here. Jesus awoke. And notice he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace, be still. And then notice the effect here. What was the result of his divine command? And the wind ceased and there was, notice that word again, great calm. Now in the Old Testament scriptures, it's really clear that God is the one, he's the only one who can calm the raging sea, right? And so here Jesus does what only God can do. He issues a command as the God of heaven and earth. And all of a sudden, this raging, roaring sea, this great storm, right, has been reduced to a great calm. All by simply a word from the master. The Old Testament says it again and again and again. Here's just one example. Psalm 89. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. Verse 9. You rule the raging of the sea. And when its waves rise, you still them. Who, who does this? Only the Lord God of hosts. Only God. God alone. Now, if you dig into that word rebuke right here, rebuke, it's used earlier in Mark's gospel, a very similar incident involving another kind of danger. I want to mention it briefly. Back in Mark chapter 1, Jesus did another kind of rebuking. This time, it wasn't a deadly storm. It was demons. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus what? Jesus what? Rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out. And they were all amazed and so that they questioned among themselves. And notice what they questioned. What is this? A new teaching with authority. Listen to how this sounds so much like our passage. He commands even the unclean spirits. And they what? Obey him. Right? 
Jesus rebukes the stormy wind and the raging sea. And tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of gallons of water are calmed at an instant. The Sea of Galilee is as smooth as crystal. Let me read you a quote from that book I gave out earlier from R.C. Sproul. He said this, quote, Jesus controlled the, the forces of nature by the sound of his voice. He didn't say a prayer. He didn't ask the Father to deliver them. He dealt with the situation directly. He uttered a command, a divine imperative, and instantly nature obeyed. And Sproul writes this, the wind heard the voice of its creator and the sea recognized the command of its Lord. Let's look at this last part. A savior on the sea. Verse 40 Jesus asks a question. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And then notice this. This is interesting. We'll talk about this in a minute. Verse 41. And they were filled with what? There it is. Great fear. Great storm. Great calm. Great fear. Now, one question I want you to ponder, we'll get, we'll get to this in application, but I want to wonder, when you read this passage, so look at your Bible, don't look at me, look at your Bible, look at verse 40. When you read Jesus' two questions, how do you hear those questions? Do you hear them as stinging words of disappointment? Do you hear them as words of a kind of frustrated rebuke? Do you hear Jesus scolding his disciples? I mean, after all, they've seen a lot at this point. They've seen a whole lot. They, they had plenty of evidence to know who Jesus is at this point. But how, how do you, what's the tone of voice in this statement from Jesus? I don't think, and I'll make an argument for this later, I don't think Jesus is scolding his disciples I think he saved his rebuke for the winds and the waves. I, I think Mark intends for us to hear the Messiah's questions to his frightened disciples flowing from the tender heart of a Savior who's come into the world to rescue the perishing. I imagine the voice of a loving parent Maybe you've, as a, as a mom or a dad or a caregiver, maybe you've said to a small child before, why are you so scared? Don't you trust me? Brothers and sisters, Jesus is love incarnate and love is patient. And oh, how much patience he has needed with these disciples. How much patience does he need with us? 
Now notice the response. They were filled with great fear. This is shocking. I want you to think about this for a minute. Y'all probably have paid attention to this before, but think about this. They were afraid earlier because of the raging sea, right? Now, if you were in the boat and you're afraid of the storm, and then all of a sudden, that fear has been relieved because the storm is now gone, the sea is calm, what do you think the response would be? They're high-fiving, right? They're, yes, we're going to live. But according to Mark, they go from fear to great fear after the, the threat of the storm is gone. Their, th- their fear has increased. Do you see? Why? Like, why does this happen? That their fear, they're filled with fear, you see? They're filled with fear before, and now they're filled with great fear. Mega fear. What's going on here? Well, just real quick, a little thing on phobias, right? We all have phobias. What are some of the fears, that pho- phobias that people have? Fear of heights, yep. Fear of spiders, arachnophobia, yeah. My brother's got that. What else? Fear of water, hydrophobia, what else? Which one? Snakes? I don't know that one. What was it? Claustrophobia, fear of tight spaces. Um, there's a, there, there, there is a, uh, a certain fear. Um, maybe you've heard of it. It's called glossophobia. Many of you have it. It's fear of speaking in public. Pastors must be crazy. <laughs> well, but there's another fear I want you to think about. It's called xenophobia. What's, anybody know what xenophobia is? Yeah. Fear of strangers or fear of anything that's foreign. It could be fear of foreigners or fear of anything that's unknown. Fear of foreigners. Xenophobia. Fear of strangers. And we all have this a little bit. When you're walking down the street, let's say you're walking your dog in your neighborhood. You're walking down and you look up and it's, it's dark. And you look down the end of the corner and someone turns the corner and it's someone in, and they're in the shadows. You don't know who it is yet. What do you do? You, you, you kind of, you just instinctively, you kind of try to figure out, you try to put them in a category. Is that a friend? Is that a neighbor? Or is that, is that a foe? You look at their body language. You look at how they're dressed. You look at their facial expressions. What are you doing? You're putting them into a category that you can make sense of. Should I fear this person or say hi to this person? I mean, if you, if you recognize this person as your neighbor, well, then that's going to be one thing. If you get closer and it's a guy in a clown suit, you're, you're, that's different, right? <laughs> that's different. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. What's happening in this passage is that whatever categories the disciples had for Jesus, he just broke their categories. They don't have a category for this man. They have quickly realized that instead of standing up when they woke him up 
and helping them pitch water out of the boat or pass out the life jackets. He just started talking. And then everything on the Sea of Galilee went as smooth as crystal. They have no categories for the stranger who's in the boat with them. Look at the question. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is it? Who's in the boat with us? I heard John MacArthur once say, the only thing more terrifying than having a storm outside your boat is having Almighty God in your boat. Why would these Jewish men be so frightened at this point? Well, listen to Psalm 107. This is basically a poetic commentary on our passage. That you could take this passage in Mark 4 and Psalm 107, this passage, and put it together. I read this psalm this morning. It's the 17th. If you go through the psalms, do 30, 30 days, you end up in Psalm 107. Listen to what Psalm, this is a commentary on the past. Listen to this. This is amazing. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters, and they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And they mounted up to the heavens, and they went down to the depths, And their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then, what did they do? They cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he, what? Delivered them from their distress. Does this sound like anything you've read so far? It gets better. Whoa. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Now notice this response. Now unlike the response of questioning unbelief that the disciples have, Look at the psalmist response, which ought to be our response. Let them what? Thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Well, brothers and sisters, I want us to close with three applications. Then we'll sing the doxology and pray and then go hear the handbell choir, okay? First application, this text is summoning us to turn to Christ in our desperate distress. And like I said before, how how do you hear that question? You know, listen, if you're a parent who scolds your children all the time, they won't probably come to you in their distress. But if you are gentle, if you're approachable, If they know you love them, 
you'll go to them. They'll come to you. Even, in, even when they've messed up royally, they'll come to you. And in the same way, I think this question really helps us to get at where do we run when we're in desperate distress? If you're in desperate distress this morning, Will, will you run to the Lord? Well, you won't run to the Lord if you think he's scolding you. So what tone of voice? Why are you so afraid? Jesus asks. He asks each one of us this morning. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? What tone of voice do you hear the Savior speaking? A scolding one or a gentle tone of love? Now, it's a long quote, but it's worth it. Commenting on this passage, one of my favorite Anglican brothers who's been dead 200 years, named J.C. Ryle, wrote these words. I want you to listen carefully. It's a long quote, but listen up. Commenting on these verses, he says, We learn from this passage that our Lord Jesus is exceedingly patient and pitiful in dealing with his own people. We see the disciples showing a great lack of faith. Is that true? It's true. They, they, they knew better. And they gave way to fear. They forgot their master's miracles and their, his care for them in days gone by. They thought of nothing but their present peril. But we see our Lord dealing most gently and tenderly with them. He, he gives them no sharp reproof. He makes no threat of casting them off because of their unbelief. He simply asks the touching question, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Let us mark this lesson well. The Lord Jesus is very pitiful and of tender mercy. As a father pities his children, even so the Lord pities those that fear him. He does not deal with believers according to our sins nor reward us according to our iniquities. He, listen, he sees all our weakness. He is aware of all of our shortcomings. He knows all the defects of our faith, our hope, our love, and our courage. And yet, he will not cast us off. He bears with us continually. He loves us to the end. He raises us when we fall. He restores us when we err. His patience, like his love, is a patience that surpasses knowledge. It is his glory, beloved, to pass over many a shortcoming. And then here's the best part. Jesus has not changed. His heart is still the same now as it was when he crossed the Sea of Galilee and stilled this storm. High in heaven, at the right hand of God, Jesus is still sympathizing, still almighty, still pitiful, still patient towards his people. My question to you, brothers and sisters, do you believe that? Do you believe that? If you believe that, you will turn to this Christ in your desperate distress. Second application. This text teaches us to treasure Christ, 
not just in the general, but in the fear of the Lord, in the fear of the Lord. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe, maybe you think of religion as a kind of man-made thing to deal with scary things in the world. And so many, 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 many philosophers and teachers uh, who are not Christians have taught that religion is invented out of a fear, even a fear of nature. We, we don't, we're scared by things in nature, so we create a religion to deal with it, to, to, to manage our fear. So we, we personalize and sacralize nature. We start making offerings to nature in order to, to appease nature. So the thing is we create a God that keeps between us and the thing we're really afraid of, nature. Floods, forest fires, earthquakes, disease, all that stuff. Even storms. That's the idea. Anybody heard this before? This is in like psychology 101, all right? But did you notice, friend, in this passage, what happens? Christianity is a little bit different. <laughs> Who would invent a religion where the very God is actually scarier than nature itself? They're more frightened of Jesus than they are of the storm. That theory doesn't really work. And in that story in the book of Jonah, right, that story in the book of Jonah, where we, we have this description of an intense storm. Remember what happens? I'm not going to read all of it, but remember what happens? The Lord hurls a great wind on the sea. Jonah's fleeing for his life, right? He's trying to get away from, from going to preach where God called him to preach. And a, and a mighty tempest shows up on the sea, and then the ship's breaking up, and then the, the pagan sailors are afraid. There it is. And they cry out to their gods, they start throwing stuff overboard. And meanwhile, where is Jonah? Down in the inner part of the ship. And where, what is he doing? He's just like Jesus, fast asleep. And then, of course, they find out, they wake him up. They find out that he's running away from the Lord. And you remember what, how, the, the, how the, the, the pagan sailors respond. What, what's the result of all this? Notice, they called out to the Lord. So these pagan sailors, they were offering to their idols before. Now they're calling out to the Lord, the God of, of Jonah, right? They're calling out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not us innocent blood on us. For you, O Lord, have done as it's pleased you. And so what do they do? Heave ho for Jonah, right? <laughs> Overboard. They pick him up, they hurl him into the sea, and all of a sudden the sea, what? Ceased. It's raging. And then notice this last phrase. What replaced their fear of nature? Verse 16. Then the men, what? Feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. What's going on here? Brothers and sisters, this event on the Sea of Galilee, just like this event this historical event in the book of Jonah. God, this morning, wants to not decrease your fear. He wants to replace your fear with a greater fear. He wants to replace whatever fear you have this morning with a greater fear of Him. 
He wants you to revere him, to fear him alone. He wants to replace your fear. He wants you to treasure Christ in the fear of the Lord. So I ask you, friend, what are you afraid of this morning? What are you afraid of? This text is teaching us that Jesus is mightier than any of the things you're afraid of. So it might be good this afternoon to write down what are the things that are plaguing me, that are keeping me up at night? What are the things that I'm afraid of? And Jesus wants to replace your fear with a greater fear, a reverent fear and adoration of him. Brothers and sisters, the fear of the Lord is what? It's the beginning of wisdom. Everything begins with fearing God. And so, brothers and sisters, treasure Christ in the fear of the Lord. Last one and we're done. Last application. How are we going to do this? This is great. We turn to him. That's great. We've, but how, how do we cultivate a fear of the Lord? Well, we only cultivate a fear of the Lord by trusting in his word. We trust in his word. The word of God by the spirit of God cultivates a fear of God. Right? Which is the, the soul of godliness. Now, so this is really obvious. Now, you're thinking, where is this in the passage? Uh, it's right there in it. Did you notice it? Whose idea was it to go across the sea? Y'all wake up. Whose idea was it? Okay, that's pretty bad. Whose idea was it? Jesus, right? Who said, let's go to the other side? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> This is, this is this is seminary seminary level exodus. Look at this, he. <laughs> exactly. He's, he's, he said, "Let us go." Right now, now let me ask you this question: Did they make it? Five one. They came to the other side of the sea. Now, why am I drawing your attention to this? If the disciples had simply trusted Jesus' words, they wouldn't have been afraid. Because he's the one who said, let's go to the other side. He, he knew exactly where the storm was. He led them into the storm. And the question is, will they trust him? Will they trust his word? Will they trust his word or will they trust whatever the trial is that's out here? What, what are they going to fear? Are they going to fear that or are they going to trust him? And so I want us to help us trust him. I want us to just to linger and meditate just for a minute on these two questions. Because Mark answers these two questions. These two questions will help you trust. Do you not care that we're perishing? And who is this? Those are the two questions. Those are the key questions in this passage. And brothers and sisters, the gospel of Mark answers both. Do you not care that we're perishing? Jesus went to the other side of that Sea of Galilee and he continued his ministry in Galilee, in the north. And then Jesus, in a few chapters, is going to set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. 
And what's he going to do in Jerusalem? He's going to die in the place of those who are perishing. He was teaching his disciples, saying, this is what's going to happen to this one. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Brothers and sisters, do you not care that we're perishing? Jesus cares. Do you know how much he cares? He died, the Holy One, the Mighty One died in the place of the perishing in order that we might live with him forever. He cares. He cares infinitely. And friend, if you are here this morning and you're wondering, how has Jesus cared for me? Oh, friend, if you don't know the Savior, whatever storm you're going through this morning, this storm that Jesus went straight into on the cross is infinitely far greater than anything you're going through. And he bore the wrath of God, the storm of God's holy wrath in his body on the tree. And he offers you life and forgiveness and grace this morning if you'll turn to him, if you'll trust in him. Trust in him. Turn and trust in this one who dies for the perishing and rises again for our justification. Last one, who is this? The whole gospel of Mark is intended to answer this question. Who is this? And the most poignant answer given to this question is given at the very last or second to last chapter of the book. Remember when Jesus is crucified? Jesus utters a loud cry and breathes his last and the curtain of the temple was torn into from what? Top to bottom. And when the centurion of all people, the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he answers this question. Truly, this man was the son of God. Brothers and sisters, this is your king. This is your savior. This is the holy one. This is the mighty one. In any and every desperate situation, this one is mighty to save. And he's demonstrated it for us on the cross. The most desperate situation you've ever been in is standing before a holy God as a sinner. And he has accomplished redemption for you. This is who our savior is. Let me close with this and we'll be done. John Owen, one of my heroes, the day before he died, he wrote a letter to his best friend. And this is what he said. I am going to him whom my soul has loved, or rather who has loved me with an everlasting love. This is the whole ground of my consolation. And listen to what he says. I am leaving the ship of the church in a storm. But while the great pilot is in it, the loss of a poor under rower will be inconsiderable. Then he says this to us. Live, pray, hope, 
wait patiently and do not fear. His promise stands invincible. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Is that your comfort this morning in the storm? He will never leave us nor forsake us. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do cast ourselves down now before the majesty of your grace. And we ask you from the bottom of our hearts that the seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root in us and dwell in us so richly that neither the burning heat of persecution would cause it to wither nor the thorny cares or fleeting pleasures of his life choke it out. But that by your blessed spirit, as the spirit of truth, as the spirit of grace, as seed that's sown in good soil, he might bring forth 30 and 60 and even a hundredfold, all for the glory of your dearly beloved son, our blessed redeemer, in whose name we pray, amen.